So Money episode 1259, Kaylee and Nate Clamp, co-authors of The 80-80 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger relationship. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Probably most importantly, you need to watch the mindset and make sure that both people are trying to stretch toward each other from that place of radical generosity versus having the power struggle over 50-50 and what's fair. Because, you know, as most people who are listening to this probably know, it just never really works out well. You know, it seems like the right approach. It's what we default to, but it, it never really works. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. If you are striving for equality in your relationship, partnership, marriage, you might be doing it all wrong. Our guests today, Nate and Kaylee Clamp, are a married couple and co-authors of the new book, The 80-80 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Relationship, recently named an editor's choice pick by the New York Times. Now, what does 80-80 marriage mean? Well, as you might guess, it's a playoff of the idea of a 50-50 marriage. And according to Nate and Kaylee Klemp, striving for a 50-50 marriage is really just a framework for failure. In our conversation, we explore the shift from fairness to what the couple calls radical generosity, as well as individual to shared success. We also go over a number of tools for making these shifts real in the areas of saving, spending, and balancing power. So important. If you are in a relationship where there is an imbalance of income, you want to listen to this episode and maybe revisit it with your partner. Here's Nate and Kaylee Klemp. Nate and Kaylee Klemp, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you and congratulations on the release of your book, The 80-80 Marriage. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, we got to start off with the title and uh, kick us off by just telling us what you mean by 80-80. I know it's a play on numbers. We often think of marriage equality as ideally 50-50. So why should we reframe our thinking around this to more of an 80-80 goal? You're exactly right. So 80-80 is a play on 50-50 that what we learned from watching couples try to make things perfectly fair is that just gave them another reason to fight. So 80-80 is an invitation to stretch beyond that 50% point to see if you can contribute more than your fair share. But 80-80 is really, it's about a structure so that you can win together and the mindset that enables that structure to work. We're going to dive into some more of the details of that structure. But of course, as so many authors, uh, you come to this book with personal experience. This was perhaps a pain point in your own marriage. I was reading, um, you know, you were both lacking a lot of time for one another and it prompted a lot of thinking around how to redesign your marriage. And so tell us a little about the behind the scenes of your marriage. <laughs> well, how was it not working in your relationship? Yeah, well, in some ways, the story starts near you in New Jersey. So we got married when we were 26. At the time, I was a graduate student at Princeton living in a graduate student dorm. Kaylee, on the other hand, was a real adult. You know, she had a job and she had a, a IRA and a 401k and all these things. And so 
we started our marriage in this dynamic where Kaylee was by far the over-contributing partner in our marriage. I was the under-contributor. And yet paradoxically, we felt like everything needed to be fair. You know, we weren't our parents. We weren't our grandparents. So here we were striving for 50-50 fairness, living in a situation where Kaylee out-earned me by like a factor of five. She was also doing most of the domestic work. And what ended up happening is the more we were striving for fairness and 50-50, as you called it, actually, the less equal our marriage became, the more we fought, the more tension we experienced. So this book was really almost like a 15-year journey for us to figure out, is there a way out of that kind of dynamic? And is there a better alternative to 50-50 where we can be equals and in love? So let's get into some of the mechanics of this. Run me through, maybe you can use yourselves as an example. You also interviewed so many couples for this book, but I would love to paint the picture of what a typical 80-80 day looks like for a couple that say has kids, both working parents. How does this play out? Well, first of all, I think it's worth just talking a little bit about 50-50, which we found that in our interviews, if you asked people, do you ever fight over fairness or what's 50-50? Most people said, no, you know, we don't fall into that trap at all. But then if you dig a little deeper and you ask, well, what what do you fight about? What are your conflicts? Most couples have some version of this going on, whether it's fairness around domestic work or free time or money, which we're excited to explore more with you. Um, So basically, this is kind of a universal dynamic. And we think of it as like the center of gravity that we tend to fall into. You know, these are like the default habits running in our minds. So when it comes to 80-80, it really is counter habitual. And and it's an exercise of almost like catching yourself as you fall into that fairness trap. So what that looks like, you know, we talk a lot in the book about this idea of radical generosity. So that's the key mindset shift where instead of fairness, the thought is, how can I be radically generous? And it turns out that if I make that mindset shift, it's contagious that our our mindset really does leak onto our partner. Mm. And so we start to enter this kind of upward spiral of generosity. And to make it super practical and also maybe a little bit too self-centered. So this morning we woke up early and our daughter woke up at five. I was scheduled to go on a walk where I was going to talk with my dad. And as five o'clock arrives, that's not going to happen unless Nate says, Hey, I can jump in here, right? So there's an active contribution that's radically generous. It's not like it's his job or his turn. Well, then when I come back, there's a sense of, oh, the dishwasher needs to be unloaded. And it's not, well, because he did that, I will. It's just, that's what needs to happen. And so there's these little moments throughout your day of recognizing what needs to happen and how can I jump in? And when somebody else does it for you to be able to say thank you and sincerely Mm -hmm. mean it. Do you promote or do you um, advocate for partners taking on particular domains as responsibilities? So I, you know, I've written a book about female breadwinners and to your point, the lack of fairness that can be felt in those kinds of relationships because of a financial dynamic that is untraditional. And so one of the things that a lot of relationship experts told me to tell my readers is, you know, make sure that 
each person in the relationship feels really accountable for important parts of the relationship so they each feel like providers, particularly the person who's maybe not the main breadwinner, to take on really important domains and not just helping out, but literally taking care of that entire domain, whether that's food or, I mean, things will fall apart at certain times. I mean, it's not all going to go perfectly, but you know, to know what is your responsibility for the most part, is that problematic sometimes in an 80-80 relationship where it's all about doing it all, all the time, overcompensating sometimes? I think that's an excellent question. And I would say before you divide your roles, which we do highly advocate, we find that clarity around who's doing what is essential for things running smoothly. Before you do that, though, it's really useful to check in about your values. How do you know that you're winning together as a couple? What are you striving for? Because you could go do a bunch of things where I could say, like, I own contribution at the school. But if that's not something that we value, then neither of us should be doing it. Right. And so being really explicit around, hey, you own this domain. And I think there's a really powerful component maybe we can dive into a little bit more around being willing to relinquish control over the other person's domain. Right. Because I was reading through your book and and you talk about there is uh, sort of a backlash when one person is kind of over delivering that there is actually a a thing that is over contributing that can bite you. Yeah. We uh, actually ended up writing an entire chapter called The Reluctant Partner. Because we realize that in some ways that the fundamental problem of modern marriage is that there is often, as I said before, an over-contributor and an under-contributor. And the under-contributor tends to be this reluctant partner who's reluctant to contribute, maybe reluctant to work on the marriage in the same way. And so for us, the way that played out, I was the reluctant partner for many years. And we could take finances as an example So Kaylee like ran the financial show of our family. Not only was she the primary breadwinner initially, but she was the one who had insight into all the numbers and all the checkbooks and accounts and things like that. And she kind of resented me for not helping out. But there was also this weird dynamic where I didn't really get a chance. I mean, maybe you can talk about it from your perspective. And I think exactly to Nate's point, there was a way that I liked being completely in control. I liked knowing everything. And there was this dark shadow where I also felt completely justified in resenting him. I can't believe that you <laughs> spent that. I can't it's believe it's not the most rational. That. I I yeah. feel you, Kaylee. I'm I've been there. Yeah. And we'll talk about think, the bike that I showed up with. Well in, he did. He showed up with a two thousand dollar bike in New Jersey and I was like, I'm sorry, um, who's who's riding that? <laughs> and whose whose budget did that come what's from? What's the return policy on this bike? Exactly. <laughs> what I'm hearing is that yes, there may be a reluctant partner, but also the one that the partner who is over delivering might not be as welcoming to the other partner to say, hey, like you should participate in this as well. Yeah. So it ends up being basically a cyclical pattern. So the over-contributor says some version of, hey, I want you to do this, or hey, I want you to help, or hey, this isn't fair. And the other person says, cool, I'm happy to help. I need a little bit more information. And then the over-contributor says, see, I I told you that you weren't helpful. 
And so there's the control piece that happens with the over-contributor, and there's almost the frustration exasperation piece that happens with the under-contributor, where there feels like no matter what I do, it's never good enough. And mm-hmm. there can almost be like a labor strike that happens within the relationship where both people then feel really frustrated. The over-contributor feels resentful and sort of righteous, and the under-contributor feels underappreciated and completely unempowered. And then it will show up in sideways things, buying a bike that wasn't, you know, what's the return policy on that? Or just not helping or watching your partner do something or getting super controlling about a different area of your life. Hmm. We have to talk about gender role expectations. I'm sure you know all about this and you've written about it, but it is such a force. You know, we like to think that we're so progressive, we're so modern, uh, and yet these uh, values, these I, these sort of um, ways of thinking about what I should do because I am a man and because I'm a woman, that's been so ingrained in us, right? That it's almost subconscious. Yes. And and men and women are reluctant sometimes to give up on some of these gender role expectations, even when it's killing them. Uh, Breadwinners, female breadwinners do more housework than women who make the same or less. They feel like they have to overcompensate in the housewifery department, you know, and so this is happening in 2021. How do we reconcile this once and for all? I think that you named it really well, which is at this point in time, it's unconscious. Because I have yet to meet a woman, breadwinner or not, who would say, you know what I think would be awesome? I think having completely uneven roles in our family where it's power imbalanced because of gender, that would be great. And so it's happening beneath the surface. And to your point, I think it's patterned by what many of us watched our parents do, what many of us watched our grandparents do. And so making these the expectations explicit And noticing how it's happening is one way to start to untangle it. So literally writing on a sheet of paper what each of you is doing and then looking at how those roles, how those expectations are distributed and not then saying, oh, I have one more thing on my side of the ledger than you do. I'm going to move it over. But instead looking at it through the perspective of one, what matters to us? What should be not on this list at all? And what should be our top priorities? Two, what are we good at? And so can we put on our side those things that we like to do, that we're good at doing, not just evenly distributing them? And then also, what do I really care about? That if it really matters to me that the kitchen counters are clear every night before we go to sleep, maybe I should be in charge of the kitchen counters being clear versus if it's really important to Nate that our daughter has somebody to play with every weekend, he might be in charge of those play dates because the things that are important to us, we're much more likely to do. Hmm. I'll give you a sort of silly story that I think illustrates this really well, that there was a couple that was looking at how they did dinner. And they realized that dinner was this huge stress point. They weren't sure how to divide it. There was a ton of resentment around, you know, when it's my turn to make dinner, we get salmon and asparagus. And when it's your turn to make dinner, we get, you know, Shake Shack. And so they were like, cool, we're going to fix this by dividing it perfectly evenly. And it got worse instead of better because the person who hated cooking kept doing some of those same things where it's like, it's a meal, takeout is fine. And the resentment intensified. When they actually took a step back and looked at what they liked to do and what they cared about, one partner confessed, I find cooking relaxing and our family eating things that are are nutritious really matters to me. 
In contrast, the other partner is like, I care that there are calories so that no one bonks. And so they moved <laughs> all of the meals to the one partner who really cared and shifted a bunch of things off the other person's plate. And they were both so much happier. Yeah. But even to hear that, you know, I'm like getting resentful. I'm like, shouldn't the other partner want to feed our family nutritious you know, wholesome meals like I do, our values are off base there. Like, I feel like, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's another piece of advice here, which is you got to let some things go. How do you know when to let things go? I mean, it's, it's a really good question. And I think that, you know, one of the central themes we experienced in interviewing people and in our own lives is that sometimes we have trouble letting things go because we're driven by these subconscious principles that sort of shape our entire worldview. And for us, you know, we grew up being told you need to achieve great things and you need to be successful as individuals. And so we came into marriage thinking that's the game we're playing here. And the game is for me to be successful, for her to be successful, and for us to kind of like protect our turf from each other. And I think that made it very difficult to let anything go because it felt like, again, we were in this kind of 50-50 power struggle where we were both primarily interested in individual success. So I think one way to let things go is to really like shift the whole structure there, which is something that took us a long time. It was very difficult to do, but when we did, it was a game changer Mm. where the goal is really shared success. Like, how do we actually win together? Not how do I win and how do you win separately, but how do we win together? And and we actually started to change a lot. Like I cut down the amount that I worked to be more with our daughter because that was how we won together. And it was actually a step backwards for me, but it, it was a way of kind of letting go that, that was a little bit more structural and less, you know, kind of in the moment. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I'd love to, for the time that we have left, uh, the show is called So Money, and we touched on money a little bit, but if we could go a little deeper to to discuss the 80-80 model through the lens of a couple's financial life and how well, what each person makes is never is very rarely 50-50. And, yes. and yet that is the thing that sometimes sets couples off uh, and creates challenge and arguing and feeling less than in the relationship because I make less or I don't make anything. And, and so how do we level the playing field? How do we reach 80-80 in a marriage where there is financial inequality yeah. in terms of how much we make? and contribute. When we were doing our interviews, so many people spoke to the power dynamic in the couple that shows up around money and told stories like there's a woman who made more than her husband. And she said, I hate to admit it, but I decide where we go on vacation because it's my decision. And then there was a different couple where uh, one of the partners was a lawyer, the other partners was an entrepreneur, the lawyer made more money you know, throughout their relationship. The entrepreneur sold their company and all of a sudden said, so what do we want to do with my money? And that notion where it's mine is part of what we notice undermines 80-80. That one of the key structural changes that happens with 80-80 is an experience of ours. 
Now, it might be that you have one pool. It might be that you have a shared pot and you have side stashes. It might be that you have, you know, sort of your primary accounts and one pool pot, but something where it feels like you are in it together and it feels like you win together, where Nate wants me to get a new client because we win together rather than it's awesome for me. And now I get to decide where we go on vacation or whatever the experience might be. So I think there's a huge component here that's about structure. How do you set up the finances so there's a pooled pot? And then within that, a lot gets discussed around saving versus spending. I'm going to talk about budgets. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the key principles we learned, the more we talk to couples, you know, some of whom were doing this well, some of whom were doing it not so well and getting in lots of fights about it, is that when it comes to the power imbalances that arise from money, the key tool that you can use to bring that back into balance is structure. So like Kaylee was saying, if you have a structure for saving where you have some sort of common pot, huge. With spending, you know, some of the couples who did this really well, who had fought earlier in their marriage about finances, one of the key shifts they made was having a budget with an agreed upon structure where it was like, hey, this is how much we're going to spend on Uber rides. This is how much we're going to spend on going to football games, whatever it is. It just allowed them to sort of like diffuse some of the conflict. And to share in those decisions, because I can already sense that that can be problematic if the couple is not open to even like, so there might be the person who's the breadwinner. I make the decision on how many Uber rides we get per month. That has to also go out the window. Absolutely. That the mindset that you must have to be able to implement structure skillfully is that sense of radical generosity. We're a team. How does our couple or how does our family have the most you know, exciting or the most valuable or the most impactful life? Whatever your value is, using that mindset of this is what we're after together and feeling like you're in it together undoes that risk of, oh, I make the budget and I make the decisions. And it's actually just a sneaky way to come back to that power dynamic. Yeah. I mean, it's such, it's so nuanced. I think, you know, for couples that maybe it's their second or third marriage, they're getting married later in life. I I see it play out where they're perfectly happy keeping money completely separate in the relationship. That doesn't mean they don't talk about purchases. That doesn't mean they don't have shared goals and values. So maybe we could talk about that, those kinds of instances where it's not so traditional and you may not have a 50 year marriage ahead of you. Maybe you're getting married a lot later in life and you've been through it. You know, you've been through a messy divorce, you know what it's like, and you just want to keep it simple. Is there a way to not do this and yet still be successful? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I, I think the key thing to look out for in all of these cases is just, are there imbalances in power arising in the relationship as a result of money? And as you say, for many couples later in life, maybe they don't have kids in the house anymore, so they're not worried about all the expenses of babysitters and camps and things like that. And college, right. Maybe there isn't really like any sort of asymmetrical power dynamic there that's developed. And I think in that case, there's really nothing to worry about. I think it's when you start to have this feeling of one person has more power, more control, is more important. All of a sudden, like that's where you need perhaps a little bit of structure. And as Kaylee was saying, probably most importantly, 
need to watch the mindset and make sure that both people are trying to stretch toward each other from that place of radical generosity versus having the power struggle over 50-50 and what's fair. Because, you know, as most people who are listening to this probably know, it just never really works out well. Yeah. You know, it seems like the right approach. It's what we default to, but it, it never really works. What is your advice with all the external factors going on that you know, as a couple, you might be harmoniously practicing 80-80. It's working out beautifully for you. But then you go to work and your boss is extra demanding. Uh, you go to your in-laws and they have certain, you know, they're raising their brows because they're like, well, this isn't how I think you should be running your life. And these are they, these may seem like irrelevant things, but I think that they do matter and they do weigh on us uh, when our head hits the pillow. Um, and, and I, you know, think it's important to address that while we here, all three of us, think that it's important for marriage and I'm using air quotes, equality, whether that's 80, 80 or 70, 70 or however you define it, uh, that most Americans, men and women, think that it is a man's responsibility, for example, to be the breadwinner. And so we have these cultural headwinds uh, that these expectations that are antiquated that that interfere with whether or not we feel like we're doing life right and our marriage right and whether we're really a provider and all those things. It just does impact us. And so what other changes would you like to see at a structural level, a cultural level? What sort of shifts need to happen beyond what is happening in your marriage, but outside in the world for this really to work and for everyone to be successful? It's an interesting statistic that I think if you ask people something like 98% of people believe that there should also be equality in relationships. So there's a contradiction even within some of those belief systems that's interesting just to start to name and untangle. Part of what you're describing is also being able to reveal to your partner what's happening on the outside, that those become problematic experiences. Wow, every time I see your mom, she raises her eyebrows at me that I'm not the I never bake cookies for school or that I go on business trips and I'm gone for 3 days at a time. To be able to reveal that to your partner so it feels like you're on the same page helps that stay healthy within your unit. I think part of what you're describing on a cultural level is the more couples are able to have these conversations and live in alignment with their values rather than taking as given things that were handed down, perhaps from prior generations that don't make sense, the more there becomes a community of people engaged in the conversation, starting to shift those expectations. So you're not the weird gender bending couple, but rather you have a community of people who are saying, yeah, that makes sense. And how can we support you? That I believe change starts to happen more societally as you do it, a couple, a friendship, a group, an influence at a time. The other thing I was just going to say there is one of my favorite practices that we have in the book is what we call the life report card. And it's basically a way of really thinking about your relationship to the external world, mm. which for many of us, our relationship is framed by this idea that we can just be good at everything. We can do it all. You know, we can be like the amazing parent and the amazing business person and also the philanthropist and all these different things. And we soon learn that like there simply aren't enough hours in the day to do that and something's going to give. So one of my favorite practices that we outline for couples is to really think about your life like a report card. You know, what are you getting A's in? What are you getting B's in? What are you failing? 
And the goal isn't to get more A's. The goal is actually to get fewer A's and figure out where to fail more. Because it turns out that if you fail more at things you're not interested in as a couple, you now have more time to actually get an A in parenting or actually get an A in time together. <laughs> Make that report card just a few things. Like it doesn't have to be this laundry list. I yeah. think you're right. We, we have high expectations for ourselves. And I think we set ourselves up for failure more often than we should. It's, we're not being fair to ourselves. I think that's one thing that I'm learning from this conversation is that fairness as a couple starts with being fair to yourself, knowing what you're good at, what you're capable of, what, you know, your turn-ons and your turn-offs and all of that so that you can come and, and really be honest in that relationship with yourself and with your partner. I love that as a frame. The more, if we take the experience of 80-80, can I be radically generous with myself and take that grace into my relationship with my partner, see them through those lenses, those glasses of appreciation and grace, then we can have all of the structural conversations and land somewhere that's a win for both, for all, for the family, for society, for culture everywhere. Nate and Kaylee Klemp, thank you so much for joining. This has been an incredible half hour with you both. Congrats again on the 8080 marriage, a must read in these days. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks so much to Nate and Kaylee for joining us. They are the co-authors of The 8080 Marriage, A New Model for a Happier, Stronger Relationship, available everywhere. You can also visit their website, 8080marriage.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Remember to keep sending me your questions for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. You can email me, farnoosh at soamoneypodcast.com, direct message me on Instagram at farnoosh tarabi, or you can go onto the website, soamoneypodcast.com, and click on Ask Farnoosh. I hope your day is so money.